All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute, Family Counseling Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, reach out to us. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. Don't forget, you can share your message of hope. Go to theaddictedmind.com and click on the tab, share your story. There, you will be given the opportunity to share a 90-second audio clip about what's working for you in recovery or any message of hope you want to give our listeners out there. And today, we're going to feature Chris at the end of this episode. And Chris, I appreciate you doing that and taking a chance on that. Also, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes or share these episodes with a friend. I really appreciate it. And think about joining our Facebook group as well. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, on to this episode. This episode, we are interviewing Jen Sugarmeyer, and she's going to share her story about recovery and addiction and how she got through her shame and her fear of reaching out and really was able to change her own relationship with herself. So it's a great conversation. I love hearing stories like Jen, just filled with hope and possibility. So let's go ahead and start the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Jen Sugarmeyer. And Jen, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Sure. So uh, thanks for the intro, Jen Sugarmeyer. I currently live in Dallas, Texas. Grew up on the East Coast, but I'm enjoying Dallas with my nice big truck and I have a steer head on my wall and I think I've acclimated pretty nicely there. So, Oh, nice. Yeah. I actually used to live in Texas. I grew up in Houston for a little while. So I've got some Texas blood in me. Yeah. They say everything's bigger in Texas. I'm six one, So I felt like that was a good fit. (laughs) Oh, there you go. All right. So let's just jump right in and let's start to talk about your story and your story of recovery. So my addictions really began when I was 12 and it started with an eating disorder. And what I didn't know is I was just paving the way in my brain for it to become accustomed to satisfying my reward system. And, you know, I picked my head up when I was in my mid thirties and I really said, how did I get here? I was an alcoholic. I'd been trying to get sober for over a decade And when I really, when I look back at it, it was one addiction, I would, you know, get control of one and it would just lead into another. And, you know, I work in corporate America and it was near the end there. It it got to be, I was always accustomed to living two lives. Like I said, I, when I was 12, I began down this road and I didn't openly talk about my eating disorders with folks. I was very good at hiding what I didn't want them to see. And that became the norm for me. And I didn't really admit to that person. I had two very distinct lives. And, you know, when you ask who is Jen Sugarmeyer, it's the person that was always in front of you. It was the happy-go-lucky. It was the person that was, you know, in willing to help you and go that extra mile and loving and people could confide in and all of that. 
but I had a very dark side. And as much as I didn't want to acknowledge that that person existed, that person was winning the battle over me. And I literally was running in and out of jails and hospitals straight into work because I had presentations that I had to give for the CEO. So while I'm in jail, I'm, you know, thinking about how my presentation is going to go. I mean, I talk about unmanageable lifestyle. Oh, and then I've got to go find my truck so that I can get into the office on time. I mean, just the most extreme, just chaotic life I was living. And I was trying to keep both of them separate. And it was eating me up inside. And I was very suicidal there at the end. And you know, my, so it was unmanageable lifestyle. I couldn't get a hold of my addictions. And at some point I really had to come to terms with the fact that I needed to work on me because I kept trying to fix my problem. And that wasn't it. It was really, I was trying to fix symptoms, but I was really the problem. And that probably goes a little bit to what you said earlier, having that dark side. Yeah. You know, that other, or the seconds, I don't want to say dark side, maybe that's the wrong word, but living in that double life and having the one side that's going with addiction and then the other side that's living this, you know, manageable life, at least appears on the outside and then going back to the addiction and flipping back and forth. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. You know, I never could allow anybody to get close to me because, and I wanted people close to me, but I couldn't have that because I only wanted them to see so much. And so like my dating life was a mess and that's a whole nother topic. You know, I had good close friends, but I couldn't get that close to them. So, you know, yes, I'm flipping back and forth, but even that manageable life where I appeared to have it all together, I couldn't get what I wanted because I was held back so much from flipping back and forth. You know, it's like a constant dialogue in your head. And it was, you know, I woke up as the person who wanted to do well, who didn't want to have the addiction, the person who wanted to have a life that, you know, I had always dreamed of. And yet sometime around noon, the other side would kind of take over my brain and say, no, but you are going to drink today and you are going to give in and you are going to. And so it was this constant, you know, you wake up with good intentions and then by five o'clock, that's all gone out the door. And that flipping back and forth and not having close people in your life that you can talk to and confide in. And then, you know, working in corporate America where there's the stigma around if you have any sort of mental health issues, I mean, forget that. I mean, it just, at least that's how it appeared. So I felt very alone. You know, I didn't feel that I could talk to anybody in my family. Um, I didn't think any of my close friends would understand. And so I was trying to, and at that time, you know, and spirituality is really a part of my recovery. And I never relied on God. I didn't do anything. It was just me. And so I was trying, you know, I had a very heavy burden on myself trying to fix myself every day, which I always failed and trying to make sure my bills are paid and make sure that I'm getting to work on time and making sure that I'm, you know, doing all the things that I should be doing. And at the same time, I'm managing this addiction that's like taking over my life. So it was just flip flop and back and forth. And, and that's really where, you know, I think suicide became, you know, I thought about it every day. I would sit in the, you know, where I would envision it. And I would just kind of run through the scenario in my mind. And because that seemed to be the only way out, it was so maddening. And it was just, it was like two people in my head, like on a constant despite, and I had no outlet. So yeah, it was exhausting. Yeah. And, you know, when you're talking, I'm thinking about all the shame that comes with addiction. So when we're having all the shame, we can't reach out to anybody. No one can know 
you know, if we have a mental health issue and there's shame around that, we can't share it. We're alone. I mean, I would think at times, you know, suicide could look when you're in that state, look like the only option you have. Yeah, it seemed to be the only easy way out. And, you know, I talk about in my book that I'm going to be releasing about how, you know, every time I traveled, because I travel a lot for work and every time, you know, when there was turbulence and I thought, oh, well, if this plane just went down, then I wouldn't have to, you know, that would be an easy out. And so, you know, there was a lot of where my head was at, but that's flip-flopping back and forth. And the shame is just, it's unbelievable. And it's been an interesting road actually coming out and talking about it now. And first and foremost, I mean, it's liberating. It's been a lot more well-received than I imagined, but there is still, you know, I would say I'm still going through this. It's almost like, I feel like people are like, yeah, Jen, we're, we support you, but they're kind of like groundhogs. Like they're just kind of like peeking out of their hole. They're like, let's see how this works out for her. You know? <laughs> right. Well, yeah. I think a lot of addicts or anybody who's struggled with addiction goes through that process of like people kind of waiting to see, is this person going to be successful or not? And then even yourself sometimes waiting to see if that makes sense, especially when we have a lot of shame, internalized shame, where, you know, in some ways we relate to ourselves through that emotion can be, it's painful and shame doesn't always go away very easily. It takes a lot of work. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so for me, when I got sober, I told myself I was going to take one entire year to work on myself and I have to continue to work on myself every day, but I had to work through all of those emotions. And I never really felt emotions because since I was 12, I was suppressing something. And, you know, for me, I mentioned I'm six one and which is awesome. Now it's super awkward when you're 12 and you're six feet and, you know, all the boys are two feet, you know, it's just an awkward thing. And so there were a lot of emotions with that. And so kind of hence my eating disorder started. So I really suppressed a lot of feelings in that way. And so here I was, you know, decades later, and now I have this wave of just feelings. I'm like, just sitting in all my feelings and having to work through all of those. And there's so much forgiveness that has to happen in that process. And it's not just forgiving others, but it's forgiving yourself. And, you know, I couldn't be where I am today unless I learned to let go and really just forgive myself for a lot of things. So just a lot of activities (laughs) that needs to happen. Right. I think you touch on a good point too, is that sometimes, you know, addiction develops out of those early experiences that have a lot of pain for whatever reason, and they're unique to every person. And what might be painful to one person might not be painful to another person, but whatever they are, they're there and they kind of haunt us. And then, you know, we find a way to, to deal with those feelings, whether it's an eating disorder, a behavior addiction, you know, a chemical addiction, whatever it is to take that pain away. And then that creates more pain (laughs) as we do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like I had just kind of this burning fire and I had just put layers and layers and layers and I had to peel them all back and then deal with that fire on the bottom, you know, those embers. When did you start to think, you know, I think I have a problem and maybe I need to get help. When did you start to experience that? Yeah. So I knew the eating disorder was not, I knew that wasn't mainstream. I knew that wasn't like, you know, college drinking or something like that. I acknowledged that that wasn't, that I needed help and, or that I had a problem there. With my drinking, I knew in college that I didn't drink like the others. I mean, it was to the excess. There were just a lot of 
signs that things weren't quite right. And I would say it was probably when I was about 25 that I really acknowledged that there was a problem, but I didn't ever admit that I was an alcoholic. That took at least another five years, I would say, something like that. But I acknowledged that there were things about my behavior that didn't line up because, you know, people would always tell me, oh, Jen, your behavior, this, that, and the other. And I would always get kind of scolded for, you know, poor decisions or my actions or whatnot. And so, you know, in those moments while I'm sober and people are, you know, and I'm getting scolded too, that's when I acknowledge that, okay, there's a problem, but I didn't take any proactive measures to get a handle on it. I would say from when I was like 20 to 25. And then when I was 25, then I started to become more aware and try to take some steps. And it was really within the last I don't know, five, six years that that I was really trying. I was in and out of AA. I mean, I was in and out of AA for about a decade and, you know, going to different groups and trying to get a hold of things. But yeah, it was early on. I knew that something wasn't right, but I didn't understand the power that was creeping into my life. I didn't understand what I should have been doing, and but I knew something wasn't right. Right. I mean, you have that feeling like, something's got to change here and I don't know how to do it. It's I'm lost and you're struggling. And then there comes a moment, I think for some people where they make some kind of transition where they reach out or they open themselves up and get, I don't want to say real help, but get open themselves to help. Yeah. And for me, that was probably about five years ago. And I really, you know, I started becoming more aware of, okay, this is my sobriety date. You know, I started admitting that, oh, I'm an alcoholic, not just Oh, my drinking looks different than yours. And, you know, if I ever made it to two days, I was like, progress, you know, I didn't drink and things like that. So I started wrapping my head around it more. It probably took me a good five, six years on that path until I got sober. Right. I think that happens for a lot of people. I mean, sometimes some people are able to just stop and they make that decision, but usually there's that transition period of kind of going back and forth. And then finally, I guess, making that decision and getting the help and getting the support and opening themselves up to the support to be able to kind of overcome their addiction. And like you said, you know, people are kind of watching and you're kind of watching yourself. You know, I, it was, I didn't want to publish my sobriety date, you know, and it, it was because I you know, had to reset the clock, like, I don't know, a thousand times, <laughs> you know, I'm like, this is my sobriety date, but never mind. Here's a new one. You know, it almost took me a year to start coming out and saying, this is my sobriety date and I'm committed to this now. And because I, you know, I didn't, I don't know, it's hard. It's emotional. It's really vulnerable. It's kind of putting yourself out there like that. And, you know, some people are like, oh, I've seen this before. And so you're like, you know, it's just, it's a very sensitive thing, but, you know, you just got to keep trying and nobody walks this life perfect. There is no, this is what perfect looks like, you know? And, you know, sometimes people need to keep scraping their knees to like really understand how precious their life is and how, you know, just to really get it. Like, I don't think if I had stopped drinking when I was 18, that I would be the person that I am today. I really had to just get down to the nasty. And it's like, every time I thought I was at my low and my bottom, I just kept going lower and lower. And I really think I had to get there to learn to love myself that I am today. And I, so that's my story. That's my journey. I needed all that. And so, you know, it's hard, you know, people 
you know, it's like, this is my sobriety date and they fail and then they, they get really hard on themselves and yeah, continue to challenge yourself and be hard, but don't give up. Like, just keep going. You said something right there that I'd love to explore more, which is you said, I had to start to learn to love myself. Yeah. So funny enough, again, lots of bottoms, lots of lows. I could, you know, there's lots of times that I should have like, oh, that was my aha moment. But, you know, I just kept drinking. And I had finally decided that I was ready to get sober. And well, there were a lot of things that were happening in my life and I had some dreams and whatever. And so I knew stuff in me and I was just like, I was just at a point, I was just like, I'm done with this. And But I was dating this guy. And again, I really didn't want anybody to get too close to me, but I thought I'm ready. Like I'm kind of done to be drinking and I want to get a relationship and all this. So we were dating for like four months and we had a conversation one day. We were both talking about things like both that, you know, if this is going to progress forward, what do we need to do to make this happen? And I talked about a couple of things and he said to me, he looked at me and we were sitting on my couch. I'll never forget this. He said, Jen, you need to learn to love yourself. And those, and I talk about that in my book, those were the seven words that launched me into sobriety. And, you know, the whole time I kept looking at these symptoms and saying, okay, if I just up and move, you know, then my symptoms will stay back in Virginia. And if I just, you know, change friends, or if I just stop drinking, or if I just change something about my physical situation or my material situation or whatever. And it was really, I had this moment with him and I, he was probably like, what on earth is going on? Cause I just was like silent for, I don't know, felt like 20 minutes, but my head was just like, oh my gosh, like that is truly the problem is that I needed to learn to love myself. And I didn't, there were things that I absolutely loved about myself. I love hands down being tall and it's my unique characteristic. You see me when I walk in a room. I mean, it's amazing. And I always thought I'm going to write a book about how, you know, to embrace being unique and all this. And so there were things I really loved about myself, but I really didn't love who I was. I didn't respect myself. I didn't. And when he said this to me, it was like, you know what? You will never have that life that you want until you get there. Because here's somebody who genuinely, he didn't come at me like a lot of these other people did and said, you know, oh, do you remember what you did last night or how awful of a person you are or whatever. He came at me just genuinely with care and said, oh, you know, like, yeah, you should probably love yourself. And I don't even think he had any idea what that all meant or how I was going to translate that. I think it was just probably an innocent little comment of an observation that he made. But it sounded like it cut right to the core. It did. It was like my whole world opened up in that moment. And so I think that's really telling for a couple of things. And one it's, you know, how we view ourselves. I mean, we've really got to learn to love ourselves. And then also it's the impact that we can have on other people and just showing them love and how you just never know what, you know, somebody else is going through or, you know, what impact you'll be able to have just expressing that care and concern. And so anyhow, that's my story. I mean, so it's interesting you picked up on that, but that's really what defining moment of sobriety was for me. Right. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about what we were talking about earlier. I mean, it's the antithesis of shame, right? Learning to love our, you know, we hide ourselves in our addiction. We hide our spirit. We hide it. All of it gets hidden. And then the other side is that we come out and we love ourselves and we have self-compassion and that's how we grow. And oh my goodness, that's great. What a wonderful story. 
Yeah, it's been an interesting journey, you know, and the year that I took off, I committed to him on that day. I said, and we didn't last more than two more weeks, but, you know, I said, I'm committed. Right. And I did. And I kept up and I took him out to dinner one time and I thanked him and I opened up and shared my story. And it's been the most amazing and unbelievable journey to really get to know me because I had no idea. I mean, I knew some things. I knew some of my strengths. I mean, I had a pretty on the outside, what looked like to be a normal life, but I didn't really know who I was. I never, I didn't know what I, you know, I never, I tell people I dated myself and I still do. I treat it like a relationship, you know, like you try to do things to make the other person happy and get to know their likes and their dislikes and, you know, send them, do little nice things and put little sticky notes on the mirror. And like, that's what I did with myself. And at my one year, I was like, wow, I actually really do. I can say for the first time, I know what love is. It was really cool to get to know myself that way. I had no idea how much fun I could be or how much, you know, how entertaining I could be. You know, I just, all those things I had masked. (laughs) And now I got to see all those things. And it was really a cool journey. It was a hard journey. I'm not going to make it sound like it was all roses. It was tough. (laughs) It was really tough. It was a lot of dealing with stuff, but. It is, but it sounds like you're really in that process of having that rewarding relationship with yourself that comes through compassion and kindness and self-forgiveness and getting to know ourselves. I mean, that's the beautiful part. Once we can kind of step past that shame, I guess. Yeah. Awesome story. If someone's out there and they're listening to this podcast and what would be the one thing, what piece of wisdom would you want to give them? That we do recover. I think, you know, I felt like damaged goods for a long time. And, you know, am I ever going to be able to get past my history? You know, even if I do get sober, it's like, is this life even worth it? You know, and you can get sober and you can move past this. This is all, everything that has happened to you is building you. If you see on my website, right there on the homepage, it says, my scars gave me wings. And everything in my life helped build me to who I am. And I have such an amazing life now. And I never thought that where I am today was possible. And I think while we're, you know, whether you're in addiction, you know, in some level of addiction, or you're just going through something, like sometimes it's so hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And maybe the light seems like a freight train coming at you. You just are so overwhelmed when you are in that state of being overwhelmed. And it's just one step at a time. Like you don't get too far ahead of yourself. It's literally just one step. It's not, oh, can I do a whole year without drinking? It's like, can I just get through today without drinking or drugging or whatever? Or, you know, if you're dealing with something else, it's like, can I just make it through the night without, blah, blah, you know, whatever, just today. And there is such a, an incredible life that I think is each one of us has been given a gift of today if we wake up and we are breathing. And so don't get down on yourself that you don't have something to offer or you don't, you know, you're not going to have that life. You will. It's not all going to come at once. And mine continues to keep building. So just never give up. If you woke up today, you have a purpose. And so just take it a day at a time and you're going to get that life. You know, if you just keep marching towards it, just don't give up on yourself. So I think there were a lot of points in that, but that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> no, no, I think that's great. That's what a message of hope. And you've got a book coming out. So tell me about that. Yeah. So I wrote a book. I love to write. I had written a couple books, never published, but always things I like to write. It's very therapeutic for me. Like when my best friend committed suicide, I wrote a book and 
than a couple. And as I started to work through my sobriety, I decided that, you know, all of a sudden I'm like, I think I'm like working a program here. And so I didn't want to start writing until my one year sobriety date. So actually on my one year, I sat down and I wrote the preface to the book. And it's all about, the book is called Reset. And I've actually trademarked the program. It's recognize, eliminate, standardize, elevate and transform. So as you go through the book, you'll go through the reset, each one of those acronyms and on basically how to claim the life you deserve. And I took exactly what I went through, you know, whether it was eliminating anger, you know, emitting positivity, asking for help, setting standards in your life, you know, all these different things I went through and I wrote about them and it's coming out next year. It'll be spring 2020 is when it's going to be released. So really excited. I'll also have a one-on-one coaching program that's coming out as well. So yeah, a lot of exciting things. We might be in the new year when this podcast comes out. So that'll be awesome. That'll be perfect. Yes. Excellent. And how, if people want more information about you right now, how can they find you? Yeah. So I am the one and only Jen Sugarmeyer on this planet. So you really could just Google me and find me, but I do have a website. It's Jen Sugarmeyer and that's sugar with an E S U G E R M E Y E R Jen Sugarmeyer.com. My Instagram is Jen Sugarmeyer. I think everything's about Jen Sugarmeyer. So, but you'll find information out on Jen Sugarmeyer.com. If you want to be part of the VIP I'm releasing on the first day, the books will be released for 99 cents and there'll be more information. I'll send you a few tips and tricks so you can sign up for that VIP launch on my website. It's on the main page there. So yeah, there's a lot of good information out online. Awesome. And I'll put all that information in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com. And Jen, thank you so much for sharing your journey, sharing your wisdom and coming on the podcast. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. All right, everybody, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 83. All right, here is today's Share Your Story audio clip from our listener, Chris. Hey, my name is Chris, and I'm a recovering addict. Uh, I've been clean about a year and eight months. I'm grateful for programs like the Addicted Mind. I'm in Narcotics Anonymous. I attend regular meetings. I listen to these types of podcasts. Every day I do something for my recovery. And many times throughout the day, I pause to reflect on gratitude. I'm grateful I'm not dope sick. I'm grateful I don't have to chase dope around, chase people around to get dope. I'm taking a look at my life and making changes where I need to. And I'm open to anything. The desperation that brought me into the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous and brought me into recovery is still with me. I don't ever want to go back. I'm grateful to Dwayne Osterlin for this podcast. It's one of a couple I listen to every week. I like the fact that he kind of takes all aspects of recovery in, so pick and choose things. So he's very thoughtful and diplomatic, and I'm grateful. So if you're new to recovery, stick with it. It does get better, you know, day at a time, man. If you've been thinking of sharing a little bit of your story after listening to Chris, that would be great. Just go to theaddictedmind.com. On the side, there is a tab that says share your story. Click it. You have 90 seconds to share your hope and wisdom and share it with the Addicted Mind listeners. People need to hear from everyone out there who's struggling. Messages of hope and recovery are just so important. So if that's a fit for you, 
please think about doing that and sharing your story like Chris did today. Also, don't forget, if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, rate and review us in iTunes and think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in theaddictedmind.com. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. I know. I know we've been taught that motherhood requires alcohol. I know we've been taught not to question our relationship with alcohol until we've lost everything. And I know we've been taught that if we do dare to examine our relationship with alcohol, we need to head straight to AA and declare ourselves an alcoholic who is powerless to alcohol forever. But what if all that isn't true? That's definitely not my story. I'm Suzanne, the host of the Sober Mom Life podcast. I'm an influencer who stopped drinking in January 2020, and since then, I've been telling the truth about motherhood, influencing, alcohol, and sobriety. If you suspect, deep down, that glass, or three, of wine at night might just be making motherhood harder, well, you're right. Come and join me as I chat with other sober and sober curious moms. Let's laugh, cry, and normalize sobriety together all while we reheat our coffee for the fourth time today.